Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. John Caldwell was shot multiple times in daylight in front of a significant number of children that he had been coaching football. It was claimed immediately by something called the real IRA. It was, of course, duly condemned and held to be exactly the problem with the nationalist community in the north of Ireland that reactionaries always held. They just couldn't stop killing, you see. Four Republicans were immediately arrested and were held, but have now been released unconditionally. Four other men are now behind bars for this heinous attempted murder. All of them are Protestants. One of them is a known and significant loyalist figure. And that begs a number of questions. Is the real IRA a false flag to begin with? Was the claim by the real IRA that they had carried out this attempted murder just a false flag operation? Or were the loyalists trying to kill this very senior Northern Ireland Police Service uh, Detective Chief Inspector? And if so, why? Some loyalists have been threatening the police officers in protest at the Northern Ireland Protocol, which... Rashid Sanouk, the British Prime Minister, hopes to have resolved with the Windsor Agreement. These loyalists uh, have condemned King Charles for meeting with the head of the European Union as part of the agreement. Begging the question, who are these loyalists loyal to exactly? If they're not loyal to the United Kingdom government, if they're not loyal to the King of England, to whom are they loyal? And will this be the moment when this story develops that the British say, we've had enough of your loyalism? We'll see about that, and the mother of all talk shows will, of course, keep abreast of this highly important and fast-developing story. Meanwhile, here in Scotland, where I live, we are praying for the victory of the We Free Christian Fundamentalist candidate. The We Frees are so austere, their main problem with having sex standing up is that it might lead to dancing. They are the, they are the descendants of the most extreme Calvinist Puritans that it is possible to imagine. And as someone from a Roman Catholic background, you wouldn't expect me to be hoping that their candidate, Kate Forbes, currently the finance minister, comes out on top in the race to fill the vacancy dramatically created by the rapidly departing 
Nicola Sturgeon, I wonder what she's running away from. Perhaps we'll find that out too over the next few days. Kate Forbes is at least sane. Kate Forbes can at least count numbers. As the finance secretary, uh, she knows her arithmetic, at least we must assume so, though she's in a government that has cost the Scottish taxpayer, for which read British taxpayer, because most of the money that the Scottish government are spending comes from taxpayers in places like Bradford or Bethnal Green, both of which I represented in Parliament and are both considerably poorer than the Scottish people that they are subsidising with their taxes. But if Kate Forbes does not win, we're going to have the fundamentalist of a different kind, a man called Hamza Youssef. I wonder how Joe Biden would react to that. An Indian in Downing Street and a Pakistani in Butte House, where incidentally he'd be opposed by the leader of the opposition who also originates in the Punjab. What a change in the top of the British political class. Once upon a time, we thought we should rule India. Now Indians are ruling us. But of course, as someone who's represented more people from the Indian subcontinent in Parliament, than any other person in the history of Britain. My problem with Hamza Youssef is not that he is a Pakistani, of course. Nor that, once upon a time at least, he run with what you might call the Al-Qaeda Brigade as a pretend Muslim fundamentalist. But in fact, he isn't that either. He is the living embodiment of the great Groucho Marx joke, I have principles, but if you don't like them, I have others. Hamza Youssef is anything that you want him to be. Thus, he can pretend to be a loyal fundamentalist Muslim and be a supporter of men being able to declare themselves as women, just at the wave of a flaccid penis. Hamza Youssef missed the vote on these things in Parliament, having six weeks prior fixed a meeting with leaders of the Pakistani community. His fellow members of the Scottish Parliament accused him, almost certainly correctly, of seeking to dodge the vote. But now that he's running for leader, he cannot dodge the issue any longer. Did he plump for the Muslim side of affairs or did he plump for the transmaniacs? Of course, he plumped for the transmaniacs. Not because most people in Scotland feel that way. The vast majority of them do not. But it seems the vast majority of SNP members who will be picking the new uh, First Minister of Scotland do feel that way. And Kate Forbes, the Christian fundamentalist, is being slaughtered because she has remained true to her beliefs, whilst Humza is the India rubber man, ultimately flexible. He'll be anything that you want him to be. But that's not my main problem with him either. My main problem with him is that he is a creature of the Muddle Swamp, the swamp created by the Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu, although the roles were reversed, who have ruled Scottish politics for the best part of 15 years, counting 
the deputy premiership of Nicola Sturgeon, followed by eight years in the top office. They are a total, complete disaster, unable to, well, I don't know, ride a scooter and chew gum at the same time. They cannot deliver anything that they promise. Indeed, they falsely promise. Bikes, laptops, for every child in Scotland, anyone. They cannot deliver ferries, which now have cost more than the building of the Scottish Parliament itself and still are years away from being seaworthy. They handed off to another dodgy Indian, Mr. Patel, potentially billions of taxpayers' money for an aluminium smelter which is yet to smelt and will never smelt if I'm any judge. It smells, though, to high heaven, like so many SNP scandals. But of course, of more immediate concern to more people is the revelation in the Daily Telegraph today of the state of complete chaos, if not culpability, in the deaths of thousands and in the waste of hundreds of billions of taxpayers' money and the wrecking of the British economy, represented by the lockdown presided over by the cast of Billy Smart's Circus, Boris Johnson's Billy Smart's Circus, although there was nothing smart about it. The WhatsApp chats between Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock, the then health secretary, later denizen of the jungle, in I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I bet he wishes he could be got out of the front page of the Telegraph today because it is perfectly clear, including from his ghostwriter, Isabel Oakeshott, uh, that Hancock is being sized up for sacrificial lamb. But in truth, they should all be on trial. They set off on a course of action which destroyed the economy, which devastated the lives of millions of people, even though their WhatsApp chat makes clear that there was no medical or scientific evidence behind any of the courses of action that they followed. And their cavalier ha-ha-ha approach to the doling out to cronies, friends, even relatives of undreamt of taxpayers' treasure in the totally wasted track and trace and other schemes of uh, procurement of health and safety equipment, the ha-ha-ha approach they took to the development of a vaccine which, let's just say, at the very least has been oversold, has not lived up to its billing, are all utterly damning of the Boris Johnson government. The more so because his performance on COVID was supposed to be one of his selling points, one of the reasons why we should think we might have to have him back for the Tories before the next general election. Not that long away, less than two years from now. The revelations in the newspapers are utterly damning of the government, but they are utterly damning also of the opposition which supported every single twist and turn of the government's disastrous policy 
on COVID-19 and on lockdown. Indeed, was often to be found egging them on to an ever more savage and draconian approach. Just to give you a couple of examples, it turns out that school children were only required to wear masks because Nicola Sturgeon had forced Scottish school children to wear masks and Boris Johnson opines on the WhatsApp that it isn't worth the trouble of resisting this because the nationalists will merely seek to make political capital out of it. Therefore, children were traumatized wearing masks that everybody knew they did not need. And moreover, as again the WhatsApp chats make clear, the people at the top knew that the masks weren't any good, not just for school children, but for the rest of us. A second example, though time is against me giving more, a second example is that they acknowledge that there was absolutely no medical or scientific basis for the rule of four, for the rule of six, particularly amongst children. Amongst children. Many children lost an entire year of games, of sport, of football, and of other extracurricular activities when it is clear that the leaders of our government knew that it was absolutely unnecessary. And perhaps most devastating of all is that the WhatsApp chat proves that if you were over 80 with complicating factors, you had a 6% chance of dying from COVID. That's if you were over 80 and, for example, obese or with other complicating factors, you had a 6 in 100 chance of dying from COVID. But as the government makes clear repeatedly in these chat messages, if you were young, your chances of dying from COVID were, and I quote, the Prime Minister, the Chief Medical Officer, and the Secretary of State for Health, your chances of dying were, quote, negligible. So for a negligible risk to the people under 80 with complicating factors, we have utterly destroyed our economy and scarred and traumatized our children and many, many other sectors of our population. There'll be much more in the next few shows about this because we're going to have to revisit it. But for now, I rest my case. Boris Johnson and his government should be on trial for negligence and malfeasance, something I said from the very beginning of the emergency. Only time for a few minutes on what has been the most remarkable, surprising, but politically important poll that we have ever done. It only went out at near midnight last night. Many of my colleagues did not want to pose it. Usually, it's my editor who picks the poll, but I picked this poll. I could tell that many of my colleagues didn't think that it would fly, that nobody would want to identify with Vladimir Putin. But the poll that we launched less than 24 hours ago, if you had to vote for one of them, would it be Putin or Biden? A, Putin, B, 
Biden. Almost 20,000 people have voted. And the show's only just begun. And at the moment, it is 81% for Putin, 19% for Biden on Twitter. On YouTube, it's 97% for Putin and 3% for Biden. And the others, I'm sure, are going to reflect similar numbers. After this very short break, we're going to talk to the man who taught me more about the Middle East and the Arab world than any other person alive today. He is Dr. Man Bashur, one of the great Arab nationalist leaders, and now leading the campaign to have the sanctions on Syria lifted. A noble cause and a most honorable guest. Stay tuned for Man Bashur right after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, as I said before that short break, uh, our next guest is my leader and teacher, in all matters pertaining to the Middle East and the Arab world. He lives in Beirut, but he is the king of all he surveys from the Atlantic to the Gulf, from Marrakesh to Bahrain. I've been working with him for well over 30 years, uh, nearer to 40 years, in fact, though we're both young men still. He is Dr. Man Bashur, and he joins me now on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Doctor, uh, great uh, honor, pleasure to have you uh, with me this evening. Let's start with your latest uh, task. You've been uh, leading tasks all the decades I've known you, but your latest one is to try and have the sanctions lifted on the people of Syria. Tell us how that campaign is going. In fact, uh, I've just finished a meeting with the international figures who are working with us from all continents because I think this battle we are fighting these days is an international one. The siege on Syria, the blockade in Syria, will not be fought only on the Arab land or on the Syrian land. It should be fought all over the world because it's part of an international battle. There are 35 countries which are under American siege. Syria is one of them. And as you know, dear George, uh, we have been partners 
in fighting against different siege, against the siege on Iraq and on the siege on Gaza, and even other sieges in Venezuela, in Cuba, in North uh, Korea, etc. But this time, I think we are going to win. It's different from that battle which we have fought together against the siege and war on Iraq. And even it's against, it's different from that we have fought together against the siege in Gaza. Because the international climate is different. Because the balance of powers all over the world and is in the region is different. Now Syria is, of course, facing a lot of problems, a lot of troubles, a lot of difficulties. But at the same time, Syria is not alone in this battle. We are planning for a convoy, which is like your convoy, which started in London, Convoy Mariam. We want this convoy to come from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, and another convoy coming from Iraq, from uh, United, uh, Saudi Arabia, from Gulf countries, from Yemen, from Jordan, from Palestine, coming to Damascus. If we are going to uh, succeed in this mission, I think something will happen in the Arab world and of course, it will have its uh, results all over the world. And also, we're well, thinking it does with our. Seem, uh, yeah, it does seem that the plates, the tectonic plates, are shifting in the Arab world after all this time in which uh, no Arab leader would visit Damascus or would allow the president of Syria to visit them with Syria being effectively booted out of the so-called Arab League, uh, the, uh, the plates are shifting. Now the rulers uh, of the Gulf and elsewhere uh, are now queuing up to, in a way, normalize relations with Syria. Is this under pressure from their public? Of course, it's under the pressure of the public. The Arab nations are all with the Syrians. In, the, in this battle. But also, it's under the, uh, well, I can say, there is a change in the balance of powers, regional balance of powers and international uh, balance of powers. And I think many Arab rulers are now uh, recalculating their position and they cannot be so far from their people from the public, because I think they feel that Syria now is stronger, especially with allies on the regional level and on the international level. Even Turkey is now trying to build good relations with Syria. And if Turkey and Iran and uh, the resistance in Lebanon and the resistance in Palestine are in one front, I think every other Arab ruler would recalculate uh, his position. There's a lot of talk about uh, the physical manifestation of uh, reconciliation 
between President Erdogan in Turkey and President Assad in Syria. Perhaps with President Putin, uh, they are at the table with them. Can you tell us uh, the likelihood of that? Can it look, the Syrians are, until now, are cons- yani, you can say they are reserved about this physical uh, meeting between Erdogan and al-Assad because they think that the situation in Turkey uh, will not help Erdogan anymore. But I think the Russian, the Iranians are playing an important role to ease the situation between Syria and Turkey. And I think uh, uh, most probably there is going to be a meeting before the Turkish elections. Maybe Erdogan needs such a meeting and Assad also needs such a meeting, especially if the Turkish government is going to uh, change its attitude towards the Syrian crisis. I think things are going to the interest of Syria uh, because of the, uh, they thought in 2011 that the Syrian regime would fall in weeks or in months. And as I was telling you that at that time, the Syrian regime is strong enough to stay, but it's not strong enough to, uh, yani, to, to, uh, to rule to prevail. the whole, whole Syria, to prevail the whole Syrian land. Now, I think the Syrian regime is stronger because of its, the popular support in Syria. The army, the Syrian army is now stronger. And of the allies, which are international, which are regional, and which are Arab allies. And I think uh, now the, uh, the, the position of the Arab people all over the Arab world has changed a lot since 2011, and they understood that Syria was the victim of a very dangerous conspiracy led by the states and by the Zionist entity. Now, the the predictions that Assad will fall in weeks, uh, months at the latest, uh, almost everyone who made those predictions has themselves gone and uh, Bashar al-Assad is still standing. To what do you attribute that? As I used to tell you at the beginning of the crisis in Syria, Bashar al-Assad's strength comes from different uh, angles. First of all, he is popular in Syria, although there are a lot of Syrians who are against him, but also there are a lot of Syrians who are with him. And he has a strong army. And he has also strong allies. Once I was talking with one of the leaders in the Arab world, telling me that uh, the regime in Syria will collapse soon. I told him, and he, he, he told me that a lot of forces are fighting against Syria. I told him, yes, I know that a lot of forces are fighting against Syria, but also there are a lot of forces 
which are supporting the Syrian regime. Maybe America, maybe the states is fighting against Syria, but there is Russia, which is fighting with Syria. Maybe European Union is fighting against Syria, but China is with Syria. Maybe Turkey is against Syria, not maybe, Akid, uh, for sure Turkey was against Syria, but Iran is with Syria. There are many uh, armed groups who are coming to Syria to fight against the regime, but also there are armed groups, namely Hezbollah, is coming to fight these groups in Syria. So the balance of power is not... uh, uh, against Syria, the balance of power is going to be more and more in favor of Syria. That's why Syria uh, standed uh, all these years, uh, standed still all these years, and I think it's going to win in the final analysis. The Americans are still occupying, of course, uh, the grain and oil producing parts of Syria with remarkably little comment from the international media and political class who we're told are completely against uh, seizing other people's territory uh, by force. Uh, How long can that tolerably last? I remember very well in the early 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan's Marines were literally blown out of Beirut. Uh, That's bound to be the fate, isn't it, of the American forces occupying Syrian territory. Why have they not been chased out already? I cannot speak what's happening on the fields, but I think there is going to be a strong Syrian resistance supported by the allies of Syria, which which is going to conquer the Americans and make them, make them leave Syria sooner or later because they cannot stay in Syria. They were expelled from Iraq, from most of Iraq, and they are going to be expelled from Syrians. Syrians are uh, yani, known to fight against many occupying forces. In Lebanon, they fought with the Lebanese resistance and they were able to kick the Israeli army from Lebanon. In Iraq, they fought with the Iraqi resistance and they were able to make the Americans withdraw from uh, Iraq. And I think they are going to do the same thing with uh, the Americans. But as I know, it's a little bit complicated, uh, the situation, because there are three kinds of... uh, foreign forces in Syria, occupying Syria, the Israelis in Al-Julan in the south of Syria, the Americans in the uh, north east of Syria, and the Turks in the uh, west uh, uh, I mean uh, in the west of Syria. So the Syrians are going to fight all these and they are supported by a lot of forces, mainly resistance forces. Lastly, uh, of course, we saw the uh, devastating earthquake, which has killed the best part of 50,000 people now, which struck Turkey and Syria. Uh, 
international generosity from the mm. public was enormous. Uh, in, in, in Britain and in other countries, huge amounts of money were quickly raised. But, of course, the sanctions on Syria and the peculiar relations which uh, the British government and others still have with the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism in Syria meant that some of this aid uh, went to the wrong people and a lot of this aid wasn't able to reach Syria at all. Tell us, if you will, what's the current situation of those suffering the after-effects of the earthquake? First of all, the Syrian government was very positive in helping people under uh, uh, the, under uh, in the areas where the opposition uh, is found. First of all, Syrian government was very positive, and it opened all the roads to that uh, to the, these areas. Second, I, as as it was, they used this uh, Syrian opposition. They used it as the reason for not helping Syria. But I think double standard here was very clear not only against Syria, but even against Turkey. If you see the amount which is sent to Ukraine to fight the Russians, and you see what the amount was sent to Turkey, which is an ally to the West, which is part of the... uh, It is an Atlantic country, but the amount of money which was sent to the Turks was very limited in comparison with, with that which was sent to Ukraine. So double standards towards Turkey, and between Turkey and Syria, there were double standards. This was a cause for a kind of Arab, uh, uh, yani, what I can say, Hamas uh, yani, yes. enthusiasm to help Syria. So now in many Arab countries, there are a lot of money which is collected to help the Syrians. But some, in some countries, the governments are preventing that because of American orders not to help the Syrians. But I, can, I, I think the Syrians can do it. You don't know how much the enthusiasm towards Syria is in the Arab world and in some Islamic countries also. Dr. Man Bashur, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Very good to see and hear from you again. Uh, If you had to vote for Putin or Biden, how would you vote? You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community poll. I haven't got all the results, or at least I can't see them, but I do know that 20,000 people have voted and Putin is in with a landslide. And no one rigged this election. You can count the votes on those social media platforms. Now, why is that so important? First of all, the sheer size and scale of the poll across so many platforms is simply stunning the size of it, but it indicates 
just how out of touch the so-called mainstream media and the political class are. You see, inside their bubble, everybody loves Biden, everybody hates Putin. But as soon as you take it outside that bubble, you find the result is markedly different. Indeed, overwhelmingly, it is the reverse. That's why they can't let you go outside the bubble. That's why they go to such extraordinary lengths to make sure that you don't. And by the way, my son, Torren, aged eight, won a trophy this evening. Player of the month. You'll see it on my social media. I'm so proud and I'm dedicating this show tonight to Torren Galloway in the future of Manchester United. Now, let's take the first calls. The indefatigable Joe in New Jersey. Welcome back, Joe. Go ahead. Hey, hey, George. Hey, uh, power to the people and God bless the Palestinian people, the indigenous people of the Middle East. And uh, George, my vote would be with Putin because we know that Biden suffers from cranial impotence, the inability to use one's mind independently and without aid. I mean, anybody with common sense and living in a a realistic world of reality would realize that if you stay on the side of Putin, you're staying on the side of good because on the other side is nothing but evil. You know, these you know, we're always told about the Antichrist. And yet these people, these they're, they're nothing more than monsters who feed on the blood and the death and the suffering of others, others of innocence. It you know, and enjoy they joy it, you know, they enjoy it and they'd never have any regret. And uh, as I said, monsters who feed on the blood of others uh, for personal gain. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Joe, Joe, I'll tell you what I read today. Uh, Fallujah is almost certainly uh, the worst war crime of the 21st century. And there have been many war crimes in the 21st century. It's been one long, bloody war this century. And we're already almost a quarter of the way through it. But in all the crimes, Fallujah stands out, where the people were massacred, where uh, white phosphorus rained down like uh, hard rain on the people of that city in the siege of Fallujah, where depleted uranium weapons were used. As a result, all these years later, Uh, deformed, malformed, hideously handicapped children are born every day in Fallujah. A scar across the face of humanity and a a, a suppurating sore on the conscience of those who uh, attacked, invaded and occupied Iraq, or if not, it ought to be. The United States today named a new warship the USS Fallujah. What's next? The USS Nagasaki? The USS Hiroshima? What's wrong with these people, Joe? It's a sickness, George. It's an absolute sickness. And they used our media to, to, uh, to manipulate and, and to manufacture the thoughts and the brains and the, of the American people. And not only us, but all over the world. And what, you know, I, something else came to my mind the other day. I, it, it popped in my head. NATO is a Ponzi scheme. I mean, what, what else could you call it? 
all these, you know, I, I, the EU, I checked up uh, last year, $3.27 billion into NATO, plus all the other 29 countries who have to give, what, 0.3% of their gross domestic product. Where's the money? They don't have mortar shells. That just, just your country alone. You know, we give $800 billion. You guys give $3.27 billion, and they don't have any tanks. They don't have any planes. They don't have any mortars. They don't have – where's the money? What, what did they do with That's our money? That's a very, very, very good point, Joe, and you're the first person I've heard make it. But by the way, it's not 0.3%. It's 3% of our gross domestic product. Three pounds in every hundred goes on defence. That's the commitment that the NATO countries have made. Just think about that. Where did all that money go? as Joe said. How come they don't have any weapons? The German defence minister admitted today that the German armed forces could not defend Germany because they've given all their hardware and ammunition to the Ukraine. Thanks, Joe. In New Jersey, let's go to Middlesbrough, which is a kind of New Jersey of England. Peter is up next. Go ahead, Peter. Hello, George. Nice to talk to you. By the way, you deserve every penny you get because you're the only person who speaks the truth over all the fake news. Thank you. Um, basically, Thank, you. First, Thank you. Just two points, George. Is um, I knew when the furlough was on and we're all locked down and uh, businesses needed money. I know a lot of people who were claiming for shops that were closed uh, and all they had to do was go online, fill in a form because it was so swapped they just... The government just gave out tens and tens of thousands and thousands. And I know people who were claiming of multiple shops, you could have had a house and said you, it was a business. And they were just paying them out. And my, my, my problem with this is, Boris has just wiped off £87 billion and nobody, nobody's even said a word about it. He just said, right, I'm going to write it off. Never give a reason why. And, 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 and no one speaks about it. £87 billion, George. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's unbelievable, and I'm here to uh, tell you that you're absolutely right. Uh, I applied for uh, our company for uh, what they called the bounce-back loan, a very significant amount of money. I think it was a six-figure sum, uh, and we had it in our bank account uh, within 60 minutes, uh, which must be a record. You, you couldn't arrange an overdraft of 60 quid, uh, in, in 60 minutes. Uh, but we got that. Now, we are, of course, paying it back, and we were a legitimate business and were entitled to that bounce-back loan. But it turns out that criminals all over Britain were inventing companies, were inventing purposes for their companies, uh, and taking the loans and uh, buying Mercedes cars with them or running off with them to the Seychelles, and that these loans ha are all being written off. I'm paying mine, uh, of course, um, but the idea that uh, such uh, largesse of the public purse was so recklessly thrown around is quite alarming. You'll remember the other scam, Eat Out to Help Out, which actually gave a lot of people who hadn't had it covid because they were going out to restaurants and only paying half the bill. Uh, and all these other 
much more serious uh, crimes. The expenditure on track and trace, the, which neither tracked nor traced. The expenditure on PPE, personal protection equipment. Uh, the contracts that went to uh, people's mistresses, people's barmen, uh, pub owners, local publicans, uh, in which ministers drank, people who were given contracts who had never performed such contracts before, sometimes with a company that had never performed anything before. Uh, Baroness Moan, whatever happened to her? How come we're not reading about her everywhere? Why aren't they pursuing her like they pursued John Stonehouse? They searched for Stonehouse all over the world. Where is Michelle Moan, the conservative Baroness, uh, who I presume is wanted for questioning at least for one of these Mickey Mouse companies that made off with tens of millions of taxpayer uh, pounds. Last word to you, Peter. Because they're all Masons, they all cling together, they all look after each other. The other one was the woman MP, you know, I've forgotten it. She said, get better jobs or work more hours. Well, her expenses was 87,000, but uh, sorry, her, her wages was 87,000. Her expenses is 230,000 pounds last year. And they're all bang at it. The MPs are coming in fresh. They're seeing the scams. Even you can put down the tea bags a lot and they're all jumping on the gravy wagon and no one's saying nothing because they're all bang at it. They're all claiming the expenses. And this MP, I won't say his name, was in the restaurant, treating his mate and his wife and family to all food and drink. He asked me if my wife wanted a bottle of champagne. I said, no, it's too much. He went, expenses, mate, all of the expenses. There you go. They're milking it. They're licking it, George. Wow. They're licking it. But you, can leave, you, can, you, you can leave his... Yeah, I'll tell you what, Peter. You can leave his name behind the counter for me and I'll look at it after. And uh, if I can stand that up, I'll make that a big story indeed. Thank you. Very much indeed. YouTube comments. Sean PB says, King Charles interfering already into politics, something the Queen would never have done. Is this king on the same destination of the other King Charles? <laughs> For foreign viewers, uh, the other King Charles got his head chopped off. Paul Martinson says, Have you listened to Putin speak? Ever watch his marathon press conferences? Look at how much Russia has improved under his leadership. The greatest leader I've seen in my 70-year lifetime, though I can't think of one good one besides him. Well, Paul, powerful words. Thanks for them. Colonel Douglas McGregor is a retired army colonel, of course, but he's also a combat veteran. He's an author. He's a foreign policy and defense consultant. He's a man who has forgotten more about war than most of the toy soldiers in uh, the Pentagon and in the Whitehall uh, Ministry of Defense have ever or ever will know. And it's a real privilege that he's with us tonight on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Colonel, thank you for joining us. If you wouldn't mind uh, summarizing uh, the current state at the front in the war with Ukraine before we turn to the state of the war uh, at the front in Europe and in the United States. But uh, as a survey of the battlefield, how would you describe it? Many thought that there would be a massive Russian offensive to coincide 
with the 12 month anniversary. That does not, on the face of it, seem to have yet occurred. <clears throat> no, it hasn't. It doesn't mean that it won't, but I'm not sure that anniversary was ever as meaningful to the Russians as it turned out to be here in the West. I think that uh, the situation is as follows, that you have southern Ukraine, which is largely under the control of the Russians. When I say largely, I think they now control the Donbass. They have annihilated most of the Ukrainian forces that uh, were challenging their control of the Donbass. So this long-term economy of forced defense is gradually coming to an end. They have marshaled enormous forces in Belarusia, in Western Russia, and in Southern Ukraine. When I say enormous, you're talking about 550,000 to 600,000 with another 100,000 behind that inside Russia itself. Uh, they have stockpiled enormous quantities of artillery ammunition because 75% of the casualties inflicted on the Ukrainians have been inflicted by artillery, missiles, rockets. The Ukrainians are now coming close to 200,000 dead and well over 300,000 wounded. The situation for the Ukrainians is dismal, to say the least. It's really very bad, which is one of the reasons that Mr. Zelensky very recently, in fact, within the last 24 hours, talked about American soldiers and British soldiers and others from Western Europe coming to fight in Ukraine, because he has no chance whatsoever of winning. And the only way he could win would be to draw us in. Fortunately, I don't see any evidence that that will happen to us in the United States. It looks that way also to me, but it begs a question I'd like to put to you. Uh, a caller just uh, raised uh, the question, Joe, Joe from New Jersey, in fact, made the point that we have been uh, stumping up for NATO uh, billions of dollars and pounds, uh, mainly you, of course, in the United States, but we've all been stumping up an ever-increasing amount of money. Donald Trump, I remember, toured Europe and demanded that we pony up some extra for uh, our own defense, and we did. Uh, where did all that money go? How come NATO doesn't have any tanks, have any ammunition? They're all saying they, they can't give Ukraine any more. The German defense minister, Pistorius, just said that the German armed forces can no longer defend Germany. They better hope no one attacks them. Uh, the, where did all the NATO money go if it did not go on military hardware? Well, that's, a, that's an important question. It deserves a good answer. First of all, the European states, including yours, Great Britain, have dramatically scaled back the size of their forces. So that you have relatively few soldiers, sailors, airmen who are ready to fight. That's the first point in any of the European countries. By the way, we've done something very similar. Today, the United States Army has dropped down to about 450, 460,000. They're supposed to be at 485. And we don't think we could get more than 50,000 ready combat troops into the field at this point, which tells you something about the structure and organization of the force. It's not very good. We have all sorts of problems with our Navy, uh, not just in shipbuilding, but also in ship maintenance. People are leaving the armed forces in droves because they're sick to death of the leftist woke agenda and what it means for them. Uh, so I, I don't think it's surprising that the forces aren't ready. The other point is that we've been pouring an enormous amount of money and hardware into Ukraine. Ukraine is the original black hole of corruption and deceit. It was billed as the most corrupt country in the world when we entered it. Now it is being transformed into this brilliant investment. 
Uh, it was always supposed to be a, a very corrupt place where people paid no attention to the rule of law. And overnight, it's become the pristine liberal democracy that everyone should run out and defend. The truth is obviously very different. In fact, I would argue that Ukraine is infinitely more authoritarian than Russia, and it's treating its own population with almost complete contempt, forcing women, boys, old men into uniform to try and make up for the tremendous losses they've sustained over the last several months. So to answer your question, none of this should surprise anybody. We've got lots of generals, lots of bands, lots of admirals, not many ships, and uh, the money doesn't produce combat power, but it certainly maintains large numbers of comfortable headquarters in NATO. How brilliantly summarized. I'm almost speechless, uh, but luckily not entirely speechless. What does it tell us, though, also? <laughs> I don't remember you ever being the... speechless. <laughs> what, uh, what does it tell us about the military-industrial complex on uh, each side? Russia seems to be able to produce um, unending, bo a bottomless uh, supply uh, of military hardware and ammunition, and the West cannot. Uh, what, what does that say about the Western capitalist economy compared to the capitalist economy in Russia, but with still quite a centralized command pool uh, in their uh, economic affairs. And of course, if we turn to China, uh, we have uh, an entirely uh, state-directed uh, economy, albeit with huge levels of private enterprise within them. Do you see any lessons on the superiority, at least on the military field, of uh, these respective and competing sides? Well, it's important to keep in mind that uh, going back to 1990, 91, we in the United States, and I would argue you as well, uh, concluded that we were the lone ranger on the block. In other words, we were the invincible and vulnerable force. Uh, we annihilated this weak Arab army almost overnight with very little difficulty and decided there was no one else that could challenge us. Then uh, the globalists, this class of ruling elites that we have in Western Europe and the United States, decided to use the American military as well as allied militaries to leverage them for interventions around the world to promote themselves, to promote uh, their notions of liberal democratic change, but ultimately to simply secure military hegemony across the world. At the same time, we began investing in very expensive but limited sets of equipment and technologies, technologies that are very good, but also fragile. Meanwhile, in Russia, which was recovering from near total economic collapse, began rebuilding itself. And its army was not that large when it first intervened in February of last year. It actually was quite small, maybe 150,000, 180,000 uh, professional soldiers with about 100, 130,000 uh, draftees, but really a, a limited force designed for territorial defense. However, they did maintain the industrial base and they readied it for use, which meant that they could ramp up very quickly. And their weapons, in some cases, are very complex, no, no uh, sort of uh, in, by no means inferior to our own. They have all the microcircuitry, the precision guidance, they have the satellite arrays and the global positioning systems. But most of their weapons are more rudimentary and I would argue rugged, easier, easier to rapidly produce. And uh, you have Mr. Putin at the top, who has enormous support from the Russian population, the Russian people are enraged at what has happened. They realize that their country 
is really at risk because the United States and its friends uh, in Europe have declared Russia a place that has to be destroyed, whose leadership has to be removed, and whose country should be dismembered. Under those circumstances, you're not going to find very many Russians that don't support the war that Mr. Putin has ramped up to fight. But we don't have those surge capacities, so that once we ran through relatively limited sets of equipment, we were in no position to stop ramp up an industry that is so small that it would take years to expand. So right now we're spending a lot of money, but we're not getting nearly as much for our buck as uh, President Putin is. When you go to China, I would argue it's even more acute there. In China, their current military industrial production capability is twice what ours was during World War II. So for the Chinese to ramp up quickly and provide equipment, ammunition, technology, whatever, to Russia is a very straightforward and easy achievement. But for us, it's it's a nightmare. And it's even more of a nightmare in Europe, where the Europeans, particularly the Germans, literally disarmed themselves. And yet, these pipsqueaks on the western side, or, or, or semi-imbeciles in the case of Biden, uh, uh, in, in ob- almost certainly demented, they're never done talking about war. They're never done threatening people. Uh, and they're well, even... They haven't, they haven't uh, figured out... They they, they have, George, they, George, they haven't figured out that Russia is not Serbia. Russia is not Iraq. You know, these people are drunk on 30 years of easy victories over relatively small countries that could not effectively defend themselves. That's not Russia. Their resources are in abundance. You can't isolate Russia. Russia's economy is large enough and and important enough for China, for India, for the rest of the world that we can't possibly isolate it and stop them from from trading and expanding. Their economy, as you know, is doing much better than anybody in Europe. And I would argue if you look at their sovereign debt, it's almost minuscule compared to ours, which is crushing. So, you know, there was no serious thinking invested in this proposition. People wanted to bully Russia. They've been trying to bully Russia for 20, 30 years. Uh, The 2014 coup that installed this illicit regime in power that's full of hatred for Russia was mana from heaven for Washington. It thought it could build up uh, an attack force in Ukraine that could destroy Russia. And they poured lots of money and training and equipment into it. But they always underestimated Russia. They behaved as though this was just another developing country that could be crushed underfoot didn't work. It's not going to work. Yeah, uh, that begs a question then. Uh, Are we ruled by fools or knaves? I'm not sure which would be worse, but are they so stupid they imagined that Russia would be so isolated, would be uh, rolled over, uh, that, uh, that they can defeat Russia and China? Is this because they're fools or do they know the truth and are merely extorting the rest of us, playing some kind of uh, fatal poker game. Well, I think you've described all of it. Certainly, we have our share of fools. There's no question about that. People that don't understand what the name word war actually means. I mean, we haven't seen a real war, knock down, drag out wars for, what, 80 years. And so people have lost their fear of it. Uh, Americans don't understand. The war can come here. Russia can escalate horizontally. We are not sitting in splendid isolation, immune to attacks from Russia. And I'm not talking about nuclear weapons. I'm talking about a whole range of capabilities. 
Americans have no idea. The people in Washington are out of touch with reality. They have been sitting on top of the mountain for so long, they've lost sight of the people struggling to climb the mountain below them. So I think uh, I think it's a combination of everything you said. The, along with the death of integrity in terms of reporting and news, we've had the death of strategy. No one, no one establishes attainable objectives. No one balances ends against means. We'd launch impulsively in a direction and expect the whole world to follow. I think we're marching ourselves into oblivion, frankly. Many people watching this will be uh, actually gasping and wishing that you uh, yourself were in the White House. I do hope you'll consider that, uh, Colonel. But lastly, <laughs> uh, you Never. mentioned Putin. Uh, well, I, I, I hope you think about that again. But the, uh, the speech, two speeches that Putin gave last week uh, began, I think, for the first time to cut through uh, across the censorship, across the Iron Curtain, ironically, uh, of, uh, of censorship which Western companies, media houses, big tech and so on have placed around the Russian side of the story in all of this. Uh, in those speeches, he posited what I'll call the civilizational issues involved here. And I thought that his arguments were extremely powerful. It is the case that uh, in Russia, uh, cultural values, social values are conservative with a small c, uh, that religion is uh, still a thing, uh, that uh, a decent, honest patriotism and respect for history is still a thing. And he posed against that what he called the degeneracy and the, the depravity even uh, that uh, seems to prevail in your society and in mine. You know, the 97 genders, the children being exposed to all kinds of horrific uh, sexualization, the pressure on, on the age of consent with children, the trans issues and all the rest. He posited his he argued clean, conservative, normality of uh, Russian society against the abnormality uh, that seems to dominate in the West. Now, insofar as people heard those arguments, I think many people in your country and mine would be with Putin in, those, uh, in that dichotomy. What say you? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why we have to understand that this war was conceived, uh, launched, and is being conducted by a relatively small number of so-called globalist ruling elites in London, Washington, New York City, to a lesser extent in Paris and Berlin. And uh, they are inspired by Soros, not by Christianity. They are inspired by Marx, uh, obviously much more than they are by uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, and so forth. This is what we're up against. The gap between the ruled and the ruling elite has never been greater than it is today in the United States. And it's a very dangerous thing because we know when that occurs, the potential for tremendous upheaval in the event of a dramatic downturn in the economy is huge. You know, there's another point here that, that I think your viewers need to understand. The UN indicates that somewhere is between 
50 and 60,000 Ukrainian children have gone missing. Now we know what, what that means. We know the, the sick disease of pedophilia that is widespread in the West and the United States. Uh, we have open borders and 2.5 million people have invaded this country. Some of them have come in with criminal intentions. We, we also know large numbers of women and children have disappeared in this process. No one in Washington, and I can't find anybody in London or New York City, seems remotely concerned about it. But it's a great concern for the American people. We want to reestablish the rule of law. We want to defend our borders. We want to see an end to the fighting. We would like to see peace talks take place. But as you heard yesterday, Jens Stoltenberg announced, no doubt at the behest of his masters in Washington and London, that uh, Russia will have no peace until effectively, you know, they withdraw entirely from Ukraine. Uh, this is absurd and nonsensical. It has no chance of happening, but it's a signal to Mr. Putin and to the Russians. They have no negotiating partner. What this means is that Ukraine it has to be crushed. And that's a tragedy because it's not something we want. I don't think it's something the Russians want, but they have no choice. We've left them no off-ramp. Does this poll surprise you, Colonel, finally? Uh, I asked, if you had to vote for one of them, who would you vote for? A, Putin, B, Biden. And I can tell you that more than 20,000 people have voted by 90% to 10% for Putin. Does that surprise you, that poll? It does a little bit because of the enormous effort that's been invested in demonizing Mr. Putin. I mean, Mr. Putin is now in the same category with Stalin and Hitler and uh, Saddam Hussein and so forth. So it's hard for me to imagine that people are that alert that they know that's not true. Well, it's good news that they are. Colonel Douglas McGregor, I do hope you'll run for office soon, sir. Your, <laughs> your head and shoulders above the pygmies that inhabit our corridors of power. Thank you, sir, for... Uh, join us now. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, the YouTube chat's gone completely mad on the names of USS carriers. Uh, Anubis the third says the USS Killary Clinton, and Anthony says the USS Grassy Knoll, and Brad Briggs says the USS Manzanar. Orban Attila says USS Skid Row. Jack Klugman says the USS depleted uranium. Uh, replacement, uh, R3 placement, says USS Balloon. And Sleepy Joe says USS they slash them. Brilliant stuff. Okay, a quick break. Uh, and it's uh, calls all the way to the witching hour. Stay tuned. As the green smoke rose, their faces flashed out, pallid green, and faded again as it vanished. Then slowly the hissing passed into a humming, into a long, loud, droning noise. Suddenly, a humped shape rose out of the pit, and the ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out after it. 
forthwith flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to another, sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each man were suddenly and momentarily. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Turn to fire. Back to the lines. Leem is in Canada on Syria. Leem, welcome to the show. Um, well, I initially wanted to call to say thank you personally for your um, uh, updates and coverage of what's happening in Syria, um, not just after the earthquake, but... Uh, and um, I wanted to say that I went to Syria uh, in the summer that just passed. And I spent my supposed to be vacation just crying um, in agony at what I saw, how my country has been flipped around. Uh, I remember it as a child. Um, my mother chose to immigrate to, uh, to Canada when I was only seven. And I, I really don't agree with her choice, but there's nothing I can do. I've been raised here in Canada, and, but have always uh, went back to my homeland and visited and always enjoyed my time. Um, and as you know, uh, Aleppo is a, is a very, very um, cultural city, full of great uh, history. And um, so is uh, all the, are, are all the other cities in Syria. And I have such great memories. Um, and this summer when I came after uh, 10 years of not visiting Syria because of the war, I was just heartbroken. Um, at the people and their situation and everything there. And I can only imagine how bad it has become after the earthquake. So I wanted to personally thank you for um, bringing such great guests that speak about the situation. Also, I have become uh, more aware of, of people like Max Blumenthal um, at the Gray Zone and others who, who do update us with the correct information about Syria and um, this has just uh, been such a great eye-opener. So thank you. Well, uh, if that was heartbreaking, uh, your call is heartbreaking for me because it brings back all the memories uh, of these last uh, 10 years and more uh, of uh, deliberate destruction. Uh, let me put it another way. I have seen 
uh, crimes committed by my own country and by the United States as a, as a politically conscious teenager and until now I have seen them uh, almost without number. It would take me the rest of the show just to list the names of the places where these crimes took place. And the crime against Iraq and, uh, and, and against Libya were uh, extremely grave and wounding crimes. But the worst thing that we have ever done was the role that we played in Syria. And it's worse for two reasons. First of all, it's worse because Syria was and is and forever will be a jewel of human civilization. Uh, you talk of Aleppo, one of my favorite places in the whole world, a jewel of the Orient, of antiquity, uh, one of the oldest uh, cities on the earth, uh, and which uh, was uh, delivered by us, Canada, United States, and Britain, and the other NATO countries, into the hands of the head choppers, the throat cutters, the heart eaters, the alphabet soup of fanatic Islamist extremism, a city, Aleppo, of many faiths and cultures and great and ancient history was delivered to the kind of people who destroyed the antiquities of Palmyra, for example, and murdered, beheaded the old man who kept the treasures of Palmyra for humanity, uh, a, a treasure trove for the world heritage was in the hands of some of the most evil mass murderers, a death cult, and all of them were armed and funded and proselytized for and even transported by my own country, your country, and the United States uh, of America. So that's the first reason why it's the worst thing that we have ever done. Because if we had succeeded, and by the grace of God we did not, then the flag of Al-Qaeda and ISIS would be fluttering over Damascus today on the Mediterranean. There would be an ocean of blood running into the Mediterranean. The blood of apostates, the blood of different religions, the blood of everyone who did not accept uh, the hideous, grotesque interpretation of Islam, of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And the second reason why it's the worst thing that we have ever done is because we have schooled and armed with sharp swords and much worse, an army of fanatic extremists who are extant, who are just waiting for their next battle, which might be, God forbid, in Ottawa, in Toronto, in London, or in Paris, or in Brussels, or in Berlin, or maybe all of them. They're waiting to take their diseased mentality, their death cult, wherever they think that they can strike. 
And now on the dark web, they are buying. They are buyers, as they say, in the marketplace. They're buyers of much of the weaponry, handheld, shoulder-borne weaponry that we have poured into the failed state of Ukraine. So it's not just what we did to deface, to disfigure the beautiful land of Syria, the land of Malula, the holiest place in Christendom, where Jesus walked, where Jesus prayed, where Jesus ate. Not just what we did to disfigure Syria, but what we have done by putting sharp swords in the hands of those who wish to harm us and our children in our own countries. Lim, thank you for the opportunity to say that. Uh, from the YouTube chat, Paul Metz Cohen says, one of the most stunning interviews I have seen for a long time. Colonel McGregor was superb. I've got to say that. I mean, we moved on so quickly. I didn't have the chance really to reflect on it. But I don't know if there has ever been a more powerful case made by any former military figure. And we've had some great ones on here. A more powerful case by any American. A more powerful case by any politician of any stripe of any country than that made here tonight on the mother of all talk shows by Colonel Douglas McGregor, who by antecedent must, of course, be a compatriot of mine, which makes me feel even more warm about him. Uh, in regards to the USS Carriers, uh, J.P. Rolls Rolls says the USS Pink Panties. And Brian Holden says the USS Tax Havens. Uh, Solid Sativa says the USS Wuhan. <laughs> and Black Jack Pinoco says the USS Pronoun. It is just wonderful. Back to the phone lines. Terence in Norwich. Go ahead, Terence. Uh, good evening, Mr. Gallery. Nice to see you back on the air. And I watched the Manchester United game alongside listening to you. And they were flattered by the 3-1 score. West Ham played well. Anyway, that being said, um, I want your opinion on the, the joke that is the Thunderbird puppet, the third prime minister, the son elected of the 80,000 Tories. And his, his claim now to uh, recorded a victory for Brexit, stroke not Brexit, Brexit, stroke not Brexit, Europe, we hate Europe. And just to back that up, I'd like to think that the great Gideon Levy is listening, and I want Mr. Levy to realise that the Sinn Féin are the only political party that has said they want the Israeli ambassador out of the island of Ireland. So I want your opinion on the Brexit nonsense that we're sort of, you know, being... I'd like, <laughs> yes, I'd like to, to, I'd like to, I'd like to, Terence, but first I must uh, commend the mellifluous eloquence uh, with which you raised your question, quite beautifully expressed in a quite beautiful accent. Uh, secondly, let me tell you that uh, I love David Moyes like a brother. I love West Ham. And I fully accept that scoring your third goal in the 95th minute uh, does flatter one. And United, I saw the first half... Uh, were not the real United. They obviously improved in the second. But the point is, into the draw, 
goes the name Manchester United. And we are still in for the quadruple. We've won the League Cup. We're in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup. We're only a few points behind the leaders, Arsenal, who are traditional Devon Locks, uh, who, uh, who always fall in the final furlong and may well do so again. And we are the favourites to win the Europa League. Just think about that. The quadruple. Ten Hag's done one hell of a job, but Rishi Sunak has not. And the, the pitch that he made in Northern Ireland yesterday, I think, was so riven with a giant illogicality, I'm amazed that nobody is making more of it. If the deal he's offering the people of Northern Ireland is the best deal that it is possible for anyone to imagine, full access to the United Kingdom market and full access to the European single market, if that's such a great thing, why is only Northern Ireland being given it? Why Brexit at all? Because what he's offering to Northern Ireland is what the entire United Kingdom had. We had access to the UK market and we had access to the EU single market. And our country became a slag heap. Our country became a pit of misery, of economic decline, on a spiral downwards, a vortex to hell our country was before we decided to leave the European Union. And as I argued, as one of the leaders of that campaign, alongside people like Aaron Banks, who had a very great victory in the courts uh, yesterday against the slanderers, the libelers, the, the mendacious, militarized mendacity of those who sought to cheat the British people of their victory in the Brexit referendum. There's not many true believers left. Mr. Banks, Mr. Farage, me maybe, we're the only three. We're the last people standing of note defending Brexit. The Tory ministers that campaigned for it never mention it. They haven't done anything with it. I wanted Brexit for a reason. Not Brexit for its own sake. I wanted Brexit for the opportunity that it gave us to do things differently. Instead, we've done things exactly the same, but without access to the European single market that we're now trying to sell to the people of Northern Ireland as the best thing since sliced bread. It's incredible when you think of it. That logical Achilles heel in Sunak's pitch that the entire media and political class have remained completely silent about. It's the obvious question. If what you're giving Northern Ireland is so good, why don't you give it to the rest of us? And of course, to that, there is no answer that he can give 
though he probably imagines that after a little while we'll go quietly back into the European single market and all of Brexit will just have been a dream. Terence, thanks for that in regards to the USS ship names from YouTube. Uh, Brickshoe says the USS occupation. That's brilliant. And JP Rolls Rolls says the USS Nord Stream pipe dream. Excellent. John is in Yorkshire, but wants to talk about US politics. He's very welcome. John, go ahead, sir. Thank you for having me, George. And whatever happens, keep up your work, because I, I sometimes wonder that you don't actually appreciate what you're actually doing. You're the last line of defense, along with a few others. The inner workings of the permanent administrative state, I mean, you've touched on it now regarding the United Kingdom and what you've just described, but I mean, obviously in most countries they've got something very similar. So if you let me just go through a couple of things um, and give you like a brief history, much of which I'm sure you already know, but for the viewers I'll try and tie this together. So I'm going to start in 1960 when JFK takes responsibility of the, Viet the Vietnam portfolio. He states in his inauguration clearly to support any friend of the global fight against communism. The rapidly increasing advisers let slip that in terms of engagement allows advisers to return fire if fired upon. So this is clearly a first sign of an impending escalation, which he's obviously very aware of. He's surrounded by the intelligence community offering advice. But where is all this heading and what does this advice simply imply? In an interview with Walter Cronkite, months before he's died, JFK states that in the final analysis, it's their war. This 180-degree turn, plus other issues, were ultimately his death sentence. JFK was, in the opinion of an influential few, a communist sympathizer, and because of this, he paid the ultimate price. For the next 10 years, LBJ and Nixon both openly stated and repeatedly that allowing Vietnam to fall into the communists would lead to what was then described as the domino effect, the loss of Southeast Asia. That was why the Americans' youth needed to be sacrificed. It was never just about Vietnam. So let's try and connect the dots with where we are now. Two years ago, Joe Biden gives the green light for what turned out to be a chaotic retreat from Afghanistan. Amongst many tragedies, billions of dollars of equipment left behind, much of which will find its way onto the black market. Globally, Biden's credibility has crashed. Just over a year ago, Biden holds a press conference. A question is raised regarding the reporting of mass formations of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Biden's stated response was that the limited incursion, quote, looked a possibility, but it was never said with negative tone. But within hours, pushback came from the White House, which needed to correct this particular statement. This is a great example of the uh, inner state coming into fruition. Um, the correction came from embodied influences with the same mindset as previous regimes that we've just talked about. And this time, unlike the retreat from Afghanistan, they were sending a clear message. American exceptionalism is back. Finally, George, you showed a very recent video of Trump calling out the very same permanent state that we're speaking of. He went further than any previous president that I'm ever aware of. 
a perfect example being naming and shaming Victoria Newland and those that surround her, including her husband. It seems obvious to me that the permanent state leadership of the intelligence communities, mainstream media and Wall Street will go to extraordinary lengths to stop Trump, possibly by whatever means possible. It wouldn't be the first time. Well, you, you put it very well, I must say, and I agree entirely with everything that you said. I'll comment only on the Donald Trump video, which we played on the uh, show on Sunday night. If you didn't see it, uh, please go uh, onto YouTube or elsewhere and watch it. Uh, you can, of course, find the show. It's uh, sun last Sunday's show. And uh, watch it, if only for the Donald Trump video that we played in it. I, too, have never heard any, never mind former U.S. president, I have never heard any senior U.S. political figure ever make a statement like he made in that video. Naming and shaming Newland, yes, but many, many other things. It was the most coruscating, the most devastating indictment of the deep state that killed Kennedy. Uh, and as he made it, as I watched the video, I could almost envisage in my mind's eye the awful possibility of a grassy null moment for Donald Trump. And you have just uh, reiterated that point, for which I'm grateful, John. Uh, more calls. Mehrdad is in Amsterdam on Syria. Go ahead, sir. Yes, hi, George. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for all your uh, great work. And uh, I wanted to comment on what you said about Syria. And I agree completely. And I'm originally from uh, Iran, but I live in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, for 23 years. Uh, I came here when I was uh, eight years old. And I'd like uh, to let the audience from the West uh, know that uh, Iran is always uh, talked about negatively in the news in the West. And... Uh, uh, just like you said, uh, thank God that uh, uh, they didn't uh, achieve uh, uh, what they wanted, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And uh, people should know that Iran was one of the key players to help the Syrian government and the Syrian people to defeat ISIS. Sure. And on top of that was, uh, of course, uh, G General Qasem Soleimani, who got killed because of what he did in Syria and because he didn't let the agenda go on and... Uh, uh, bring uh, death and uh, destruction, uh, so they killed him. And uh, I like uh, uh, the people in the West to understand that you shouldn't always trust what the media says about other countries. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, again, uh, thank you for all your Amin. work. I follow Amin. you always. Yes. Thank you, Mahdad. I mean to all that. Uh, the only thing I'd change in what you said is uh, not that you shouldn't always trust what you read in the mainstream media, but you should never trust what you read in the mainstream media, as Malcolm X, uh, better than anyone else, uh, repeatedly said. The media can have you hating the people that are uh, trying to free you and loving the people that are imprisoning and oppressing you. Uh, now... Uh, the next caller has become, as he was indeed in the old days uh, on the radio, uh, has become a video star. We're using his clip from an earlier discussion with me uh, as a promo. 
He is the one and only Tommy in Glasgow, and he's back. Tommy, welcome. God bless you. I love you, brother. Salaam alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah. How you doing? Wa alaikum salam. Thank you very much for your call. It's been a great show tonight, I think. Indeed, indeed, as always. And before I go into my point, anyone, everyone, please donate to this show. In the world of darkness that surrounds us all, the beacon of light that is this show, I, you all know, just donate and donate and donate because this boy deserves it, Mr Galloway. Now, God, God bless you, George, because I was going to paraphrase Malcolm X and you quoted him right there. America's chickens are coming home to roost. The country of America was yep. taken from the land of the Comanche, the Apache, the Navajo. It was stolen. Black Africans were taken from millions enslaved by terror. And if you want to talk about the terrorism, you know, you look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They kept these cities free from the bombing. Well, they bombed Kobe and other places and in Japan, the Japanese emperor was ready for submission, yet they rushed through the Manhattan Project and gave us the terrible bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you look at Nicaragua, where they were found guilty, America, half a million people. If you look at what they did in Halabja, on the very day that the world was told how bad and heinous after over a million people killed on each side, Halabja with the gassing of those people, Donald Rumsfeld selling weapons of mass destruction. We give you Srebrenica, where the entire Dutch government resigned because 7,000 people were killed. Sabra and Shatila, where that illegitimate Sharon, the road to Basra, the retreating army that was on the way back where George Bush annihilated. Madeleine Albright said half a million children is a good price to pay. Her own leader, Bill Clinton, when he built a chemical factory in Sudan, it was making drugs to help the people. Fallujah, what happened there as you spoke, Grenada, Panama, the list is on. And within hours of me being born, George, the 14 men in Derry that the British government, so from Britain to America to NATO, how dare they have the chutzpah to speak out against Vladimir Vladimir Putin for him standing up to the fascists that they unleash upon his country 70 years after the last fascist Nazis that they unleashed upon him. How dare they have the chutzpah to say anything against him? And Donald Trump, if I may say, finally, at the start when I looked at him, I thought, what is this guy all about? But then when you look at him, he could well be the saviour of mankind to against the American military junta that is seeking to destroy every single 8 billion people on the planet. So as I said at the start, if you get one penny or one pound or ten pound, give it to Mr. GG, give it to Mr. Galloway, because he deserves it for being a beacon of light for everyone, not me, but everyone else who comes on there, from Scott Ritter to Colonel McGregor, to everyone, to Callum McGregor and Anne Ponsacoslu, Ponsa I mean, I just have to jump on that one. They give me a bit of freedom hell, and happiness. <laughs> hell, hell, brother. <laughs> hell, hell. Hell, hell. Uh, Tommy, you're some talker, man. Uh, that was uh, another tour de force from uh, Tommy in Glasgow, and as he adumbrated the war crimes of the United States, and he didn't actually uh, mention all of them uh, because he would have had no time to mention all of them. 
the illegal bombing of Cambodia, the propelling into power of Pol Pot, the continuing to recognize Pol Pot at the United Nations, even after he had been driven out of power on the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend and so on. I, I, I could complete Tommy's list, but uh, there's no time uh, to do so. But the one thing they didn't count on, Tommy, was that although there are a lot of sheep, and they have the sheepdogs to round them up, even unto their final destination, there are millions of people who are not sheep. And this result in this mammoth record poll in which 82% back Putin, 97% back Putin, 98% back Putin, and 95% back Putin, and 18 back Biden, and three back Biden, and two back Biden, and five back Biden. Tells you something, doesn't it? Tells you that the intellectual and informational quarantine and siege is beginning to fail and crumble. The wall is coming apart. Information is getting over the wall, through the wall, under the wall, round the side of the wall. And we on the mother of all talk shows have played an honorable part in that. I meant to say to the Syrian lady uh, earlier, let me say it to her now and to all Syrian people, that I would have been proud of my stand for Syria, whether we had won or whether we had lost. Now that we have triumphed, and the ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Western-funded and armed onslaught against the people of Syria has been defeated. I am very proud indeed. Last caller, Mahib, who's in Germany, is the last caller of the evening. Mahib, welcome. Um, Mr. Holloway, I thank you very much for taking yes. my call. And I thank your guests for teaching me a lot of things that I did not know before. I studied in the okay. Soviet Union, and I'm a fluent Russian speaker, although I'm an African. I went to Russia mm -hmm. in 1974, and I left in 1989 after spending 18 months in Sierra Leone, where I was born. <clears throat> now, I, I'm not going to talk about the war. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, the whole world's listening. So, um, <clears throat> the problem with this, what, what is happening right now, is a complete failure of the Soviet Union. Complete failure. Because at that time, when I was in the Soviet Union, there was already this problem. When the Russians were calling the Ukrainians Ukrop, and the Ukrainians were calling the Russians Moscow. They were always fighting. I studied in two paramilitary um, institutions, the Herson School of Navigation, Industrial Navigation. Then I, I, I finished the um, Odessa Higher Institute of Nautical Sciences in 1989. 
uh, I started my doctorate, I did not finish it. The, the, the failure of Gorbachev and Yeltsin is what we are facing right now. This problem started long, long ago. And uh, indeed, uh, indeed so, uh, but the hour is up, I'm afraid, Mahib, but I would like to talk to you again. I hope you'll make this call again on Sunday because there's much that I would have said in response to what you have just argued, some of which I would have agreed with. Uh, but I would like to make this point, that the Ukraine was uh, the most favored part of the Soviet Union, partly because Khrushchev uh, was, uh, was Ukrainian, uh, but also because many of the high personages of the USSR had a soft spot for one reason or another uh, towards Ukraine. Ukraine got more investment, had a higher standard of living than Russia. The Russian people subsidized the standard of living in Ukraine in the Soviet period. Uh, and no argument whatsoever can be uh, mustered for saying that somehow within the USSR as a whole, that the Ukraine was in any way disadvantaged, including on issues of nationalism of language, of national culture, because actually the USSR is the only state which has ever recognized uh, Ukrainian nationalism and returned lands which had for centuries been ruled by others to an entity called Ukraine. Do you think Lvov would be in Ukraine today? If it were not for Stalin and the Soviet Union, it would be in Poland. It is, after all, Polish. Uh, the uh, extent to which the Soviet Union was allowed to collapse, as opposed to, for example, pursuing the Chinese line of development, instead of uh, a perestroika and what was the, the other word? Uh, the, the democracy and reorganization. Sorry? I'm sorry I'm running out. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time and I, I can't go down the road of glasnost and perestroika now because I'd be abusing the hospitality of the staff and indeed the airwaves. But if the Soviet Union had pursued the perestroika before the glasnost rather than the glasnost before the perestroika, the Soviet Union might exist and it might be a country like China. And that might be a very good idea or might have been a very good idea. It's been, I think, a terrific, above average show. And if you enjoyed it, then please come back on Sunday at the slightly earlier hour of 7 p.m. UK time. Well, there would be more great guests, some more from me, and more great callers and texters and donors. I really appreciate the votes tonight, unprecedented level of votes on this poll that Putin won. 
who'd have thunk it? Good night. <laughs>